On today's episode of the London Lyceum podcast, Brandon and I get to talk with Dr. Matt Emerson of Oklahoma Baptist University about the doctrine of the descent of Christ. It's something that I think most Christians probably are either unaware of or potentially wary of. So I think it's a very interesting topic. Uh, We ask him what exactly it is, how the doctrine developed, if it's something we should accept as Christians. And then, of course, we ask some practical implications of what that looks like. So I think it's a very interesting episode. I I learned a lot, and I'm sure you will too, and I bet you'll enjoy it, uh, as he is a very uh, engaging guest as well. I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we encourage uh, our listeners to be thinking deeply and clearly about issues, uh, especially from a Baptist perspective. And today, I think we have an eminent Baptist theologian with us, uh, Dr. Matt Emerson, who we're very looking forward to talk to. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. Your other co-host, Brandon Askew, is not here today due to a pastoral uh, matter. So uh, good on him for taking uh, that as the priority uh, over our podcast. Uh, hopefully, all of our listeners uh, value uh, their own personal local church matters more than their online presence. So good on him for doing that. Amen. But I do want Dr. Emerson to give you a chance to introduce yourself to our listeners who may be unfamiliar with you or they may know you. Uh, think 30 to 60 second introduction, things about maybe they need to know about you uh, or maybe that they don't know about you and would find interesting. Okay. Yeah, so uh, my wife and I are from Huntsville, Alabama. We both went to Auburn University for undergrad, so War Eagle. I hope that trolls a bunch of Alabama fans. Uh, <laughs> I went to Southeastern for my MDiv and for my PhD, PhD in Biblical Theology. Uh, I taught at California Baptist for four years after I graduated with my PhD, and then uh, for the last four and a half, so this is my, my ninth year teaching, uh, I've been at Oklahoma Baptist University where I'm the uh, Dickinson Associate Professor of Religion, and I direct our graduate programs, our our two Masters of Arts programs. Um, We have five little girls who are awesome, and uh, we we like to uh, play games as a family, like to go outside, ride bikes, whatever, and I like to watch Auburn. So there you go. <laughs> and I'm assuming that uh, I see that you have an Auburn tie on. So I'm guessing that's what that's for. Okay. Uh, Always. I guess it brings you good luck as long as Bruce Pearl's your coach, right? I've got my class ring <laughs> on. <laughs> well, I know more about Auburn sports than I think I ever had planned on because of the Twitter world between you and Luke Stamps. Right. Praise so. God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, God's an Auburn fan because he made the sun orange and the sky blue so there you go fair enough i learned something new every day um i really hope jake rainwater is listening to this i really wanted to troll him he's an alabama fan he didn't go to alabama because most alabama fans don't actually go to the university uh which they cheer for so jake yeah. this is for you buddy War eagle and for whatever it's worth when i was growing up um, I know this is completely off topic, but my uh, dad grew up in Knoxville, so big Tennessee fan. We would watch yeah. Tennessee, Alabama. And when I was a kid, I thought Alabama sucked. So, yeah. Oh, they still <laughs> uh, do. Uh, I actually, my parents raised me as a Tennessee fan. They, they're both from West Tennessee. They, neither of them went to Tennessee. My mom's uh, three siblings did. And so they, they just raised me as a Tennessee fan. So my hatred of Alabama actually runs deeper than my uh, Auburn fandom, or at least longer lasting. 
That's awesome. Well, I do want to get us on topic of the, <laughs> the descent of your book that you just came out with, which I'm really interested in talking to you about. Um, cause at least me personally, and I think probably a lot of other evangelicals found this doctrine, uh, very odd, confusing, and not sure why anyone in, in the right mind would affirm it besides maybe some Catholic. So, um, I'm looking forward to talking to you about this. So why don't you kind of, I don't know if you want to set the table and just Tell us, what is the doctrine of the descent so we can have an understanding going forward? Sure. So in the book, what I say is that uh, the doctrine of Christ's descent to the dead simply affirms that when Jesus died, he experienced death as all humans do. His body was buried. And of course, not that doesn't mean every human body is buried, but I just mean his, his body was um, taken care of. And his human soul went to the place of the dead, departed to the place of the dead. Uh, and we can get more into what the place of the dead is, uh, but he wasn't tormented there. He didn't go to hell uh, to, to experience God's wrath. Uh, rather, in the descent, because he's still united to the, person, the divine person of the Son in the hypostatic union, his descent to the place of the dead and his human soul is victorious. Uh, it, it provides a victory over death. He proclaims his victory to everybody there. And when he rises again from the dead bodily and then ascends into heaven, those righteous dead, those saints that are faithful are now with him uh, at the right hand of the Father. He's raised from the dead. Uh, that's what they look for. That's what, that's what they're hoping for uh, in the life to come. So, that's, I mean, it's pretty simple, I think. Yeah, uh, it seems like it brings out a lot of, I guess, uh, I don't know, tertiary issues. So um, I would think that we'd have to have a pretty strong understanding of what we think this place of the dead actually is. Mm. Um, so when you were talking about that, it's not hell, it's the place of the dead. I'm thinking if you're an average church member, um, you probably didn't realize that there was a distinction between these two things. Right. So maybe you can explain what is the place of the dead in comparison to these other spots. Sure. So in the Old Testament, uh, the place of the dead is often referred to as Sheol. And the Old Testament can, can use the word Sheol in one of two ways. And the same thing is true of, uh, of the Greek term that's used in the Septuagint, uh, the abyss. So Sheol and abyss can be used in two different ways. They can be used just to refer to the general place of the dead. This is just where all the dead go. And we can get into this in a second, but um, they can talk about it in terms of compartments. Uh, but, but in any case, um, the place of the dead was just a general place where everybody who died went, Sheol, the abyss. But those two terms can also be used more specifically to refer to the place where the unrighteous dead go. So they can refer to both the entire place of the dead, or they can refer to a particular compartment in the place of the dead where only the unrighteous dead go. The, right, the place of the righteous dead would have been referred to differently. And in the New Testament, we see two different terms that uh, Second Temple Jews would have used to refer to the righteous place of the dead. Again, one of the compartments in this generalized place of the dead, and that's paradise and Abraham's bosom. And so, you know, when you think about the place of the dead, every human soul would have been conceived of as, as departing to this place sometimes called Sheol, sometimes called the abyss, sometimes in later Greek thought called Hades, which is what we get in the New Testament. Um, but that, play, that generalized place of the dead was also conceived of as having different compartments in it or different spaces. Uh, there was a space for the righteous dead, which would have been referred to as Abraham's bosom or paradise. 
There was a place for the unrighteous dead, which we would say hell for that. Uh, the New Testament uses Gehenna to refer to it. And also, again, Hades. The Old Testament uses Sheol and Abyss to refer to that unrighteous compartment. And then there was also a, a third compartment where um, they believed that the evil angels or evil spirits resided, which would be Tartarus and also sometimes the Abyss. So um, some of the confusion that surrounds this creedal clause, he descended to hell or he descended to the dead, the confusion is really related to how we're using all these terms. And honestly, I mean, the, the Bible is clear, right, on, on all of this, but sometimes it uses terms, the same term to refer to different things, okay? So it's not the Bible's being unclear, but you just have to pay attention to how it's using a particular term in a particular context, because sometimes it'll use shale just to refer to the general place of the dead, mm -hmm. and other times it'll use shale to refer specifically to the unrighteous compartment within the place of the dead. Um, and so when we talk about Jesus descending to, to the dead, what we're really talking about is what he says to the thief on the cross. Today I will be with you in paradise. That is the righteous compartment of the place of the dead. Okay, perfect. So that's, a, I think, helpful context. And it looks like Brandon actually was able to join us. So welcome, Brandon. One thing I, I am interested in, so we, we've kind of, I guess, kind of set the table as far as what it is and where he's going in relation to these other compartments or whatever we want to call them. Um, I mean, my friend JT Turner might not like all this terminology. I don't no, know. He, he would hate it, actually. <laughs> J, JT and I have talked extensively about it. We, we disagree strongly, but he's a good guy, good brother. So I, off topic, I'm curious, in his conversations with you, yeah. uh, what do, does he affirm this doctrine or does he deny it or does he have a novel interpretation of what happens here? Um, I, I think that, well, just in general, I think JT's interpretation is novel anyway, but uh, yeah. <laughs> love, love you, JT, if you're listening. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, at least in my understanding of our conversations, it seems like JT is still trying to explore what it would mean to affirm the dissent, given his own view of uh, the the lack of an intermediate state um, and the the emphasis on final resurrection. So, what would it mean for Jesus to, act, to for us to say that he actually descended to the dead when you don't believe in an intermediate state? And I'm not sure where he's going to land on that, to be honest. Uh, okay. So. But that's I've just found that interesting in re my own reading of him and then connecting it to this doctrine. Yeah. Uh, so, but besides that, why should any Christian in general affirm this doctrine? Mm. Well, the most important reason why any Christian should affirm any doctrine is because it's in the Bible. And so I believe that the descent is squarely rooted in Scripture. Uh, you have uh, Matthew 1240, Acts 242. Uh, Romans uh, 2, 38 through 42, uh, Romans 10, verse 9, that, that and, and others, really, that we can say, affirm that Jesus experienced death as all humans do, which means in part that his human soul departed to the place of the dead. And so, you know, we can jump back in on any of these, but I'll just very briefly summarize and say that in Matthew 12, in Acts 2, in Romans 10, the terms that the biblical writers are using in those verses to refer to what happens to Jesus when he dies are references that refer to the Old Testament's use of terms related to the place of the dead. So in Matthew 12, 40, uh, he'll spend three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, the heart of the earth in Jonah 2 is the abyss. It is the place of the dead. Uh, Acts 2, Hades, Romans 10, 9, the abyss. 
These are all terms that would have referred in the Old Testament to the place of the dead, not not to the grave only, but to the place where human souls reside upon death. Um, so, you know, this is a biblical doctrine just very simply in the fact that it affirms that Jesus experienced human death and his human soul departing from the place of the dead. But also it's biblical in the sense that um, I, I believe that the Bible teaches that the descent provides victory over death and Hades. So Revelation 118, uh, that he proclaims his victory to all of those in the place of the dead, righteous, unrighteous, and evil spirits in 1 Peter 3. And that uh, this, this descent followed by resurrection and ascension um, is, is an event that changes the nature of paradise for the righteous dead. So Ephesians 4, he led a host of captives. So I, I believe that this doctrine is thoroughly biblical. Um, and, you know, that's the second chapter of the book is me sort of defending the biblical data related to this doctrine. But, but there's also doctrinal and pastoral implications of the descent. Uh, so doctrinally speaking, the descent is important because it helps us to understand and articulate and appreciate Jesus's kingship. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, really Philippians 2.10, right? He will, be, he will be proclaimed in heaven and on earth and under the earth as king by the name Yahweh. Uh, and so Jesus is king, not just over current events, and he's not just king in heaven, but he's king even over sort of the antithesis of life. He's, he's king over the underworld. He's king over death. Um, and this is why Paul can proclaim in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last enemy to be defeated is death. Uh, Jesus has shown to be king, shown himself to be king over even death itself. So that doctrinally, that's part of proclaiming Jesus' kingship. Uh, doctrinally speaking, it's also important Christologically because it's really the key argument against Apollinarianism. Uh, if, if we were to get super nerdy, and I'm not going to, but if we were to get super nerdy and talk about um, kind of the differences in, in whether or not this line is in the creed or whether it's not in the creed, uh, in the development of the Apostles' Creed and also, also um, the Athanasian Creed, uh, what you'd see is that there's a fluctuation where this line is sometimes there and sometimes not there. And what, what we would notice is that when it is there, when it's explicitly articulated, it is exactly the moment when the church is dealing uh, most seriously with Apollinarianism. Uh, and what better way to combat Apollinarianism, which is you know this, this heresy that says that uh, the Son only assumed a human body and not a human soul, what better way to combat that than to say that only in his human soul did he depart to the place of the dead? Uh, it's, it's, it's actually, I think, a way to clearly affirm uh, sort of anthropological dualism, body and soul, specifically through affirming that about the person of Jesus, the human nature of Jesus. So it's really important in terms of our Christology and combating certain heresies, specifically Apollinarianism. Um, and then pastorally speaking, I think it's incredibly important to, to be able to say to people, yes, when somebody dies or when you die, you will on the last day be raised if you have faith in Christ. Absolutely, that, that is the ultimate hope, right? The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate hope. But in the meantime, you're staring at a dead body. Or you yourself are facing the fact that you're about to be a dead body. Uh, and so the descent clause says, Jesus has already gone before you into the valley of the shadow of death. 
he hasn't he hasn't just died and then risen again a moment later but he has experienced what it means to remain dead as a human being uh, and so pastorally there's this kind of intermediate hope that we can also give to people yes the ultimate hope and the final hope is that jesus is raised and so we will be raised too if we have faith in him but in the meantime Jesus has already been where your loved one is right now or where you yourself are about to be. So kind of the flip side of that question um, would be, you know, why would someone not want to affirm this doctrine? So um, for those who who reject it, are, are most of the rejections um, on the basis of exegesis or are they historical arguments? Or maybe is it, do you think it just falls back on a misunderstanding of, of what it, exactly it is we're talking about? Um, why do you think most people who reject it um, go that route. Yeah, I, I think it's all of that. Uh, I think that people, many people don't see the biblical warrant. I, I mean, you know, I always hesitate on, on this, but I, I do think that um, Wayne Grudem's art, arguments here are a good example for people to understand why somebody would reject the dissent. Um, so he has an article in, he has, a, he has a couple of different articles, but there's one in Jets from uh, 1991 or 1992 uh, that's called uh, He Did Not Descend Into Hell, A Plea to Follow Scripture Instead of the Creed. Uh, and in that article, his objections are twofold. First, that it's not biblical. And what he means by that is it's not in his exegesis of 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Uh, and the second argument is that uh, it doesn't mean something historically that was, uh, I don't want to say this, it wasn't It wasn't an article of faith that was continuously held throughout church history. Here he's relying on this fluctuation in the phrase and whether it's there or not. Um, he also says that it means something that's not in the Bible historically. So he says that historically it means that Jesus was tormented in hell. Well, and then, and then he sort of uh, finally says, well, and also universalism and some other things. So, you know, I would say that Grudem is a good example of why people reject it. They have biblical problems. It's not in the Bible. They have historical problems. It wasn't held continuously, and it meant something that's not in the Bible. It was just sort of dogma. Uh, and then third, it has problematic elements like universalism. And I try to address all of those in the book. Um, I don't think... I mean, I'm, I, we're on a short, short-ish podcast recording, so I'm trying to speak quickly, and I don't mean this dismissively towards uh, Dr. Grudem, but I, I just don't think those hold water uh, when you look at them closely. As I've already said, I do think there's plenty of biblical warrant for it. Um, historically, I'd, uh, we can circle back to it if we need to, but uh, historically, I mentioned the creedal issue. Well, the reason it's fluctuating is because Everybody assumed that when the, the creed said he was buried, it meant uh, he died and was buried. Everybody assumed that died and buried meant his body was buried, his soul went to the place of the dead. Problem is, when you have Apollinarians cropping up, yeah, the body was buried. Sure, we can affirm that. Well, we need to explain what we mean by that. He descended to the dead. Um, so there's, there's a way to uh, address the creedal issue. Um, and historically speaking, it doesn't mean what Grudem says it meant historically. Uh, it just does not mean historically he was tormented in hell. That is not what early Christians meant. That's not what medieval Christians meant. That's not what Luther meant in the Reformation. 
that is an innovation of, and here I'm going to step on some toes probably, but that's an innovation of Calvin. Uh, Calvin is the one who first posits that the creedal clause means that, it, that he was tormented. Of course, for Calvin, he says that he was tormented on the cross. And so if we're, you know, we can get into this later again, but uh, yeah, sure. Jesus experienced, yes, he experienced the wrath of God on the cross. I affirm that. I affirm penal substitutionary atonement. The problem is that's not historically what the creedal clause meant. It was referring to something on Saturday, not Friday. Um, so Grudem, Grudem doesn't get the historical data right. Uh, he doesn't interpret, in my mind, the creedal clause, the fluctuation correctly. He only addresses 1 Peter 3. He doesn't bring in the other biblical data uh, in that. And then finally, the doctrinal objections related to universalism and some other things. Um, that's just simply not the core of the doctrine as it was taught in the early church. Uh, there are some deviations and problems that happen in late medieval Roman Catholicism and in Eastern Orthodoxy. But that's a matter of reform in my mind, not rejection. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there are people hold people reject the clause. I think for laudable reasons, right? You don't want to hold something that's not in the Bible. You don't want to hold something as creedal that's non-creedal, that's not affirmed in the same way throughout church history. And you don't want to hold something that has problematic elements to it, like universalism. Um, but when we look at the actual data, biblical and historical, uh, I, I don't think those objections hold up. Hmm. So, uh, sort of. Yeah, go I, up, Brandon. I have a related question. I know when I hopped on, you were you were talking about the um, Abraham's bosom mm. and Sheol and Hades, and um, related to this. And if this is too far afield, or if you know you don't want to address it, that's fine. But I, I seem to remember that some, I guess you'd say, prosperity teachers, more uh, I don't know, charismatic um, teachers, teach that that when Jesus died, he went to, to hell. But when they say hell, they mean like he went to like, I guess, Gehenna, like, like where with, with demons. And, right. Um, it, is that, a, a are they pulling that from somewhere else out of church history? I know you mentioned Calvin a minute ago, or is that just a, a modern innovation where they just totally ruined this doctrine? Yeah. So I, I can't think of a specific name. I'm sorry. No, I just fine. remember hearing yeah you know I, I have a name in my head but i don't want to say it because i'm not positive uh but but there's been recent even recently um some some chatter uh related to that so i know what you're talking about um i think what i would say is that there are certain fathers that um that talk about which compartment jesus went to and so you do have conversations. Uh, the, the most notable example is Augustine in his letter to Evodius, uh, one of his letters to Evodius. Uh, he, he does talk about whether or not Jesus actually went to hell, the place of torment. And he, he said, but he's very clear. He says, I, you know, I don't really know where I land, but what I do know is he wasn't tormented. Okay, so there's this idea that, okay, maybe he did sort of descend all the way down uh, to this third, third, second or third compartment of torment. But if he did, he didn't go there and get tormented. He went there to proclaim victory. Um, this, the same kind of language uh, is used in Luther in his sermon at Torgau in 1533. Uh, it's the same kind of thing like, okay, look, if he was in the place of torment, it wasn't because he was being tormented. It was because he was telling everybody what's up, I win. Um, 
but but for the most part in the early church, what you have instead is very clear demarcations of where Jesus went. So, for example, in Ascension of Isaiah, uh, which is a, a New Testament apocryphal book, uh, you, you have this uh, comment where the Father is sending the Son in the incarnation and ultimately to the descent. It's included there. And um, the Father is telling the Son, hey, here's where you're going to go. And he, and he says, but to Haguel, that is the, the last compartment, you will not go. Um, and so you have this kind of very clear demarcation. That's, that's more what you get rather than the Augustine uh, kind of like speculation. Um, the prosperity preachers, I, I, you know, I'm not sure where they're getting that. Uh, it's certainly not from the historical understanding of the descent. There is this kind of, there's been a revival of the descent in Roman Catholic circles in the 20th century through a, a guy, really through uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, uh, who's a prolific Roman Catholic theologian. Um, and although lots of people appreciate von Balthasar for his work on aesthetics, uh, I was looking at him just with the descent, and, and um, he is innovative on it. Uh, he talks about the son being abandoned by the father. He talks about the son experiencing the visio mortis, that is the vision of death, the opposite of the beatific vision. He talks about uh, the son experiencing the, the poema damni. Uh, so all this kind of torment language, uh, even to the point where it's, it's unclear in Balthazar whether or not the hypostatic union continues in the descent. And, and for the purpose of there being separation existential, not ontological, but existential separation between the Father and the Son. And so sort of to cash that out pastorally, what you get is, and there's a book that's that's been popular on the descent with this, what you get is this kind of emphasis on abandonment, right? Oh, well, the Son was abandoned. And so if you feel abandoned, know that Jesus has been with you in abandonment. Um, and, and it's possible that that's what's going on in the prosperity preaching, right? Uh, Jesus is with you and in, in feeling abandoned. He's already been there. I, I don't know. Uh, but, but that's, that's kind of a popular way of thinking about the descent and even the cry of dereliction, right? We, we think about this as like this kind of existential separation between the father and the son. And look, that's just, okay. I need to be careful. I'll say this, um, that positing separation, even existentially between the father and the son at the cross or in the descent is highly problematic for your doctrine of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, in the book, I push back hard against Balthazar. I push back hard against Alan Lewis, who wrote this sort of pastoral, uh, appropriation of Balthazar. And I push back hard against really the most, in my mind, the most problematic person to articulate this way is, is Jürgen Moltmann. Um, uh, so it's possible that the prosperity preachers are picking up on some of that, uh, and using it for their own purposes, wherever that might be. Okay. So, in what you've been talking about, two things came to my mind that I'm curious about. Um, one, you were talking about the development of, of the creed and how it had some fluctuation at times. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned how, um, I guess, descended to the dead was particularly during when there's Apollinarian influences around and they're trying to combat that. Mm -hmm. So this is me speaking out of my own ignorance because I haven't read your book yet. Uh, I plan to, I promise. Uh, it's, it's on, it's on my reading list. Uh, but 
when was the phrase descended to de- to the dead or descended to hell exactly added? Was that in the original? Yeah, so the, the, we actually see it crop up uh, early uh, in, in terms of, so there's a long conversation to be had about how creeds were used and what their uses were and why sort of the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed is the first one we see publicly. It has to do with uh, the church being sort of more underground and then with Constantine, that doesn't have to happen anymore. So sort of in the in the fourth century with Constantine, you see a more prolific production of publicly used and cited creeds. And uh, the, the, the descent clause appears very early in that respect. So uh, Council of Sirmium in three something, I can't remember off the top of my head. I have to go look in the book. But, uh, you know, that's, that's not in the Apostles' Creed, but it's one of the earliest uses. And there's problems with Sirmium, and we won't get into it. But my point is that you see affirmation of this doctrine in a creedal line uh, as early as any other creed. Um, it, with respect to the Apostles' Creed particularly, um, it does crop up first early, like around when Athanasius, and then uh, later on into the 5th century uh, when Cyril, etc., are dealing with all of the Christological problems that are going on uh, after Nicaea and Constantinople really in conjunction with them. Um, it crops up early, and then, it, and then it kind of fluctuates as to whether it's explicitly stated or not. And then once again, um, towards the end of the patristic period, so 7th into the 8th century, it's very clearly articulated there, which of course would have been which would have been when Maximus is dealing with monothelitism and this sort of thing. So um, in, in both cases where the church is dealing with combating Christological heresies and especially Apollinarianism, it's very explicitly stated. And in the book, uh, the important, the really important point to make here is, and I talk about this extensively in the book, I'm relying on uh, the work of Jeffrey Hamm in a Westminster Theological Journal article from 2016 in this. Uh, the really important point to make is that Rufinus, uh, in his commentary uh, on the creed, talks about the fact that the early church understood he died and was buried to include the fact that he descended to the dead. See, he, he basically, and this is almost an exact quote, I think, he says, uh, what do we mean by he died right, other than he descended? And what do, we, what do we mean by he descended other than he died? Hmm. You know, so it was, ob- it was obvious that the early church viewed those things as synonymous. And it was only when you encountered false teaching that tried to hide under that creedal line, right? So Apollinarians would have said, oh, sure, we can affirm he died and was buried, Right. Well, then you have to say, no, 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 this is what we mean. He died and was buried. He descended to the dead. Uh, so uh, I think that's what's going on in the in the creedal clause. Okay, perfect. So um, I know you've mentioned somewhat, I guess, the pastoral implications of this doctrine. Um, and I am guess I'm, th- I'm wondering about more of the... Uh, personal piety, maybe for just your everyday Christian, how does this really impact their own walk with Christ? Because when I think back to my college days, when I kind of first encountered this doctrine, um, I guess I didn't see any value in it. I thought it was weird. Uh, I was the guy who would, whenever, you know, you'd sing a song that mentioned this line in the song, I would not sing that song. I'd get go silent because yeah. I didn't feel comfortable affirming it. So 
what why is it valuable to affirm this beyond obviously that it's just biblical and and the other historical reasons yeah well in the in the preface to the book i start off by talking about the fact that just uh death is inevitable you know so as human beings we face death we face death every day uh, i talked about in the preface as i was writing the book uh my my mom's only sister died from ovarian cancer uh i had a friend whose father passed away unexpectedly uh we had a uh, I, I had moved away from this church but our previous church where i was on staff we had somebody who sort of all of a sudden in their early 40s uh discovered that she had a a, a brain tumor that would never go away basically it's always going to c- come back and eventually kill her um and they had already lost a child and uh, her father-in-law had had died unexpectedly as well so it's just you know if you just think about it for 30 seconds uh death is all around us it's everywhere yeah it, in in fact after the fall part of what it means to be human is just that death is staring you in the face and uh, so in terms of pastoral care Again, to be able to say to somebody, look, Jesus has gone where you're going, and he's come out on the other side. He, he's been raised from the dead. Um, and you you too are going somewhere where that Jesus has already been. And if you have faith in Christ, you too will be raised on the last day to spend eternity with him. Um, death is scary. It's unknown. It's uh, It's something that nobody else aside from Jesus, has ever gone into and come back from. Um, and Jesus says, that, you know, when, when Psalm 23 talks about, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 20, this is totally far afield, but <laughs> Psalm 23 is a resurrection psalm. In Psalm 22, the servant, uh, the suffering servant king loses his nephesh, his life. And in Psalm 23, the Lord restores his nephesh. You know, it's it's a resurrection psalm. He's already walked through the valley of the shadow of death, that is Sheol, uh, and and he's gone and he's broken the gates down. So, to say to people who are facing disease, uh, accidents that happen, chronic illness, everybody around them has died, whatever it is related to death, um, and say, look, Jesus has already gone where you're going. I think it's incredibly pastoral. You know, the other thing I would say is that. In the early church, um, the descent was the final descent uh, that that the early church talked about. So there are three descents, actually, in Christ's life. He descends into the waters of Mary's womb. Then he descends into the waters of the Jordan. And then finally he descends into uh, the waters of Sheol. And if you read, if you read Christmas hymns, uh, what you will find is usually that verse that we always skip. We're going to sing 1, 3, and 4. Well, what are we skipping? Verse 2. In a lot of Christmas hymns, verse 2 is a verse about the descent. Hmm. Uh, that Jesus has come as, you know, you know, the first verse, hey, he's here. Great, right? Uh, third verse will be something like, uh, you know, I don't know, the church. Fourth verse is, is uh, new creation. But the second verse is often Israel and the descent. Uh, that Jesus has come to restore Israel and to provide victory over death. Uh, and so it's tied to Christmas. It's tied to Holy Week. 
um, if you if you are a, a regulative principle problem child like me and you celebrate the church year, uh, you know, the two, the two major events in the church year are wrapped around or connected to intricately the descent. Uh, so this is a doctrine that again is pastorally comforting. Uh, it is praiseworthy. That is Jesus as King, even over the underworld. Uh, and it is, it helps you understand the depths I mean, I mean that as a pun, I guess, but the depths to which Jesus descended in order to save us, uh, it, it helps us to appreciate the gospel. So I, I think there are lots of ways that this connects to our own spiritual lives. Yeah, that's that's really great. Um, and thanks for sharing all that. So I, for those lis- listeners who are here, they're they're saying, I really like what what you're, you're what you're telling me. Um, where can they follow what you're doing and keep up with you? Yeah, so the easiest is Twitter. Uh, it's just at M underscore Y underscore Emerson, M-Y Emerson with underscores in between. Um, my my blog, I co-blog with a few other people. Uh, it's called Biblical Reasoning. I don't write there a whole lot anymore just for various reasons. I, I still want to but I just don't have time. So that's possible. That's a possible avenue. Uh, Center for Baptist Renewal. Luke Stamps and I co-direct the Center for Baptist Renewal uh, along with Brandon Smith and Winston Hotman. And, uh, you know, that is a bit broader interest than just sort of what I, whatever I'm saying about the Bible or theology or Auburn football. Uh, that's actually more specifically geared towards um connecting Baptists to the Christian tradition, Mm -hmm. which of course this book is a, is a sort of exercise in that. Um, it's not just for Baptists though. So, uh, those are the three, three that I'd mentioned, Twitter blog and center for Baptist renewal. Awesome. And I know that center for Baptist renewal. I remember when that came out, I think I was in seminary. Um, and I remember being so excited about it because it was really kind of at a time when I was learning about a lot of those things and it was, uh, I guess I, without sounding really lame, it jazzed me up, uh, <laughs> still does. So, so I, I definitely commend, uh, everybody checking that out, uh, as well as your blog and, and your Twitter, as long as you can handle Auburn stuff. Yep. Lots of <laughs> Auburn all the time. Cool. Well, we've had a great time, uh, having you on talking about the doctrine of the descent. Uh, I, I for one have learned a lot, so I'm very thankful for you taking the time to talk with us. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and for those who want to follow you further, definitely jump on those uh, those avenues. Get a copy of get a copy of his book. I'll link out to it so you guys can get a copy of it. You know, if we were really cool, maybe we'd have a promo code that got you half off, but we're not. So I'll give you the Amazon link unless there's a better way to do it, and you tell me that. So no, that's good. Amazon's good. And cool. if you if you like the book, if you don't like it, we can talk. But if you like the book, leave a review. There you go. So that's that's one way you can help out. Uh, leave an Amazon review. Only five stars, right? Exactly. Yeah. If it's four, I'm going to come to your house. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time. Uh, And for those who've been listening, you've been listening to the only uh, Baptist podcast that blends analytic and confessional theology. Uh, So we're thankful for you listening, and we hope you tune in to next week's episode.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.